Okay, welcome everyone to uh, Angel Wing Podcast with Dr. Elizabeth Berman, who is a licensed psychologist in Wilmington, Delaware. We are very happy to have her presence in Angel Wing and her dedication and her time. So many, many thanks to Dr. Berman. Uh, today's subject for further inquiry is a continuing inquiry based on uh, our Sunday evening dialogues regarding the relationship between love and attachment. This subject was started this past Sunday, uh, which is yesterday, the 11th of, uh, of uh, April, 2021. And Dr. Berman's insights on this are going to be very interesting for us to listen to. Just as a preamble, I just want to give a brief review of what was discussed. We have been examining love in its multitude of aspects uh, for the last nine weeks or so uh, on Sunday evenings in the meditative dialogues. We have anywhere from 12 to 20 people log on at any given time. And it is quite an experience. It's an approach that's taken to become aware of one's own uh, mental activity, emotions, feelings, memories, uh, perspectives, those kinds of things. So to that effect, uh, we are here to obtain Dr. Berman's point of view and perspective um, regarding, regarding the relationship between love and attachment. And these two words are quite powerful. Love has quite a bit of depth within it as we were examining before. And of course, the word attachment. Um, just to start out with, the initial question would be, when you hear the word attachment as a psychologist, what is it that really comes up in your mind? What is it that you perceive as that, as what attachment refers to. And then you can, you can proceed from there into what the relationship would be with love. Well, immediately I think of attachment as either being, um, and these are psychological terms, but I, I, I think pretty much everybody can relate to it. Securely attached, insecurely attached, and um, erratic attachment. So the difference, and, and so attachment in, I think it's most basic form is an energy of feeling or wanting to feel connected to someone or something else. Um, we can be attached to a grandfather clock that we have in our house. We can be attached to the dog we've recently adopted. We can be attached to our spouse, to our children, to our grandchildren. We can be attached to clothes, cars, any, any number of things. So in that sense, there's a relationship there, at least in our own mind. Now, probably my favorite shoes don't have an attachment to me, but perhaps all of the human, all, all of the animate life forms can have attachments. So it's very clear that an adopted dog can form an attachment to someone in the household and go to that person when they're frightened. Last night there were thunderstorms that had 
significant lightning and thunder and it became very clear that uh, we have a <laughs> thunderphobic dog <laughs> in our house now. And he showed his attachment because he immediately ran to me and would not leave my side. When I walked, I had to be very careful not to step on him. That's how close he was in his fear. Um, my granddaughter, not nearly so <laughs> attached to, to me. Um, so I use those examples as an insecure attachment is one in which, like my dog, in a frightening situation, the dog wants to be near me, see me, feel me. Um, a, a healthy attachment would be one in which um, there's an energy flowing between the two, we'll just say individuals, that's healthy and open, but neither one is dependent on the other to be exactly the way they want them to be all of the time in order to feel good about the relationship. Okay, so there is a relationship between two individuals, whether it's a mother and a child, whether it's a couple, whether it is a group of friends, there, it seems to me that there is always going to be some form of attachment whenever there's a relationship. To be in relation with someone, is that necessarily the case that attachment develops? Or, or are you saying that that may not be the case? I'm saying it may not be the case. So there are ways of being able to be in relationship with people in which there is no attachment. All right, hold, and, hold that thought just for a second. As I hear that, I think as others might hear that, that might seem like a very difficult thing to even believe. That is that even possible? Because most people are living in some kind of, a, there's, they have accepted attachment as part of a relationship structure. This is, this is just from my perspective. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, but could you really elaborate on that? This is a very powerful and very interesting statement you're making. And I would really love to for you to elaborate on that, please. Um, when you were speaking, what came to mind is my relationship with my male person, yeah. male lady. Delightful young woman who is in love with our new dog and goes out of her way to just be lovely. Lovely, always a smile, always a happy interaction. Um, I have a relationship with her. When we see each other on the street, we wave, we smile. We're, we're actually happy to be engaging with each other briefly. I have no attachment to her, none. Okay, so, so I have a relationship with her because anytime there's an exchange of energy, you're forming some kind of a relationship. So, so, so there really is a difference between a relationship, having a relationship or being in relation to someone, some situation, something versus attachment. Yes, uh, a relationship is formed by exchanges of energy between two people. Mm -hmm. um, attachment can be one of those energies. 
Um, if you look at any longer term relationship, I think in a very honest evaluation of the energies coming to and from both people in that relationship, there's going to be a mixed bag of positive um, energies, more expansive energies, let's just say of respect and gratitude, um, admiration even. So, so would you say that's where love comes in when there's respect, gratitude, admiration, the, what we consider generally positive qualities, is that where love can enter into, the, into that realm and then that's where it flows in the relationship? Um, I would say in answering that question, um, yes, there can be. I mean, I have gratitude for my male person, but I don't know that I'm in love with her. So, okay. So when you use the word love, is that used in a very, in a more restricted psychological sense? Or is that word to be used in a much more transcendental sense, a higher spiritual sense? The word love is ubiquitous in the English language, certainly the American English language. And Madison Avenue has co-opted it in order to use it to get us to think that we're not good enough as we are, and we need to buy things to change ourselves to make us more lovable and more desirable. So I think anytime the word love comes up in a conversation that it bears um, a careful examination of how the word is being used. For me, I can very uh, quickly express to you that there are, I see two kinds of love. Now the Greeks had, I think, seven or eight different words for love describing different aspects of love, but mine is a little different differentiation. It's there's human love, which involves attachment in the way of, I will love you under certain conditions. If you hit me, if you become violent or abusive with me, I will no longer be in relationship with you and, and we will, I will end it, right? So, um, and, and in most relationships, that takes many more subtle forms where people, but it, it can take many subtle forms. Then I differentiate a divine love. There's the love that comes from the gratitude of recognizing life within yourself and recognizing life around you and the respect that that carries. And, and it's almost as though, as I look out my window and see these amazing pink blossoms showing up on the tree, because this is being recorded in early spring, it evokes something in me of such gratitude and such appreciation of that beauty that I could say that the energy that I'm sending to that plant and my observing it or that tree is love. So you have mentioned that in a relationship, there is a, an exchange or sharing of energy. This is this. Yes. So let me clarify. In a relationship, there are three energy fields. Let's just say my relationship with you. Sure, sure. 
there's my energy, what I'm sending to you. There's your energy, what you're sending to me. And then there's the relationship energy, which holds both of those streams of energy. Oh, and oh, just a quick question on that. When you say that there's a relationship energy, so is that is that like a more, uh, it, how can I say this? Is that an energy that is like a com combination of the two energies or is it something that arises somewhat different? Could you so it's a combination. It's almost like if we could imagine um, a see-through tube that goes, yeah. let's just say from my chest to your chest. Yeah. The relationship energy would be that tube, right? That is channeling your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, maybe even your touch. Right. And the response to that, right? right? So so depending upon what each person puts into the relationship, right? The energies, the relationship in and of, not in and of itself, but the relationship energy can become more and more positive, more and more expansive, or it become, can become more and more controlling, more and more resentful, more and more judgmental. And you can see over time how those different energies will shift the, the, the relationship between the two people. And in saying that, it's very important for me to clarify that I don't have any direct control over the energy you put into our relationship. Right. The only locus of my control is what energies I choose to put in the relationship. Now, what we know over time is people who put positive, empowering energies into a relationship, the relationship grows and both people grow in it. Okay, so that's very, very powerful and very fascinating that we, of course, have energy. Of course, we are in relationship, in relation with so many people in some form or other. Some are stronger relationships, some are weaker. No one lives in isolation for the most part. I mean, isolation is not a good thing anyway. And when the question of attachment comes up, many people view attachment as something negative, that they ought not to be attached because they're experiencing some level of pain. Yeah, that's, that's better. They're experiencing some level of pain, discomfort, dysphoria, entanglement in an attachment. Um, and many people are kind of stuck within that also. You are, of course, a psychologist, been practicing for many years and studying for many years, all of this phenomena. The, the reality of pain is, is there. I mean, it, it's, it, it exists in all kinds of relationships. Are you suggesting, if I hear, if I heard you right, that there is the possibility of not being in that sphere of pain or in that realm of pain by being in a relationship, but there's a more evolved way of being in a relationship. Is that something, something like that you were trying to say, perhaps? I don't know. Yes. Yes, and, and I think that education is absolutely critical. Um, going to school, 
nobody ever talked to me about how to manage money. They never talked to me about being in healthy versus unhealthy relationships. There were a lot of things that were missed in education. Even training in psychology was much more um, conceptual than actually looking at what people experience in their everyday life as they go through life in relationship to people. So what I'm saying is, if people are able to come to a place that I'm going to call radical responsibility, mm-hmm. which is accepting that if something's going on in my life, in some way, I am responsible for that happening to, to me. So literally stepping out of the victim role. Mm -hmm. taking on the responsibility to say, okay, this is here, I'm aware of it. What am I going to do about it, right? So the radical responsibility is saying, I recognize something, what am I going to do about it? Not, what are you, Sachin, going to do about it? My microphone's not working, Mm -hmm. right? So microphone's not working is an easy thing because we're in COVID, we're in lockdown, we're very far away. And if my microphone doesn't work, you can't do anything about it. But that same dynamic, right? That, that illustration is, we can all get that. But what about somebody comes home from work ups, really upset about who knows what, and the partner says, hi, honey, how are you? And they kind of grumble and just go into the bathroom. The partner can feel, Oh, he doesn't love me anymore. Oh, what's going on? He's avoiding me. Oh, why isn't he the way I want him to be? Because if he was, if you, Sachin, could always fix my microphone for me, my life would be better. So why aren't you a better partner doing what I want you to do? Right, right. So, so that, that sense of accepting I'm in relationship, if I'm feeling uncomfortable in, in either in this relationship, this interaction, to be able to tell myself, what do I need to do to help myself be in the state of mind I want to be in? as opposed to saying, oh, bad partner, why aren't you more loving? Why aren't you more available? Why aren't you, you know, growing a beard? (laughs) All of these are my things, right? And so often when we're in a relationship, we've, we've not been taught or even encouraged to have the kinds of conversations which say to each other, in good times, this is what I expect from my partner. And honestly say that to each other and give, being given and giving to your partner the ability to think about that and say, yeah, I can try and do that if that's important to you, or there's no way I'm ever gonna be able to do that for you or be that for you. And we assume that people, I can't tell you how often couples therapy, somebody, she would come in and say, 
he always buys me flowers on the on on special days that seems like a good thing no it's not a good thing he buys me roses why hasn't he figured out i don't like roses his mother's the one that likes roses i like tulips and the partner sitting there eyes wide open thinking you've never said that to me right and and if he says it out loud you know, the person says, well, if you loved me enough, you'd know that. Yeah. And that, you know, the absurdity of that statement as we're talking about it abstractly is clear. But when you're hurt and you're feeling neglected and you're feeling uncomfortable and you're pointing your finger out as the blame or the cause of that, it's hard to hear those things. It's hard to hear it's hard to hear how we victimize ourselves by projecting responsibility out on others. And I think that this is a core dynamic in relationships that if addressed safely and comfortably and early enough in the relationship, when people are open to trying to examine what's going on and be a bit more adult about it instead of fairy tale happily ever after about it, Right. So uh, you mentioned about um, a type of interaction that doesn't have attachment as such. Um, what would be present then in such an interaction? Is that, is that what you mean by love or is that that divine love? Well, attachment, atta yeah. See, as humans, we're always going to feel attachment. Exactly. Especially in longer term relationships, when you have an older couple and one f does pass away, there's sometimes the grief is so strong in the surviving spouse that within a couple of months they die. It's almost like they've chosen to yeah. end their life on the, in, in this form, in this human body, right? Um, so, so that's a part of being human and with education to be able to recognize, oh yes, this is, this is attachment and I'm human. So yes, I'm experiencing attachment. And if there's discomfort here, like you, you can't bring a dead spouse back to make you feel better, right? Right. That's a pretty radical example of when you're blaming the other for your own feelings and emotions and thoughts. It, it, it's a waste of time, right? When they're alive and they're sitting in front of you, it seems a little more realistic that they could change to fix your life. But no matter, it, it, it doesn't work that way. We have to read our emotions, understand what they're telling us, and choose to act on them and not point the finger out and tell somebody else they have to fix us. Yes, yes, exactly. There's also a great deal of expectation in different attach in different relationships. And when expectation is not fulfilled, that's when there's great <clears throat> great deal of negativity or arguments, <coughs> those kinds of things happen. So again, it goes back to the original question. The relationship between love and attachment that if i hear you right you're saying that there can be love 
allowing love to be where attachment really doesn't exist, but, but this different kind of good energetic interaction is there in, the, in an ideal sense, perhaps. Yes, and, and perhaps in human life, there's, there's always going to be some form of attachment. But let, let's just, you know, many cultures have a, a designated mourning period, right? right? And, and, and it's prescribed and the culture tells you how to handle it and what to do with it, right? You wear black and you, whatever, maybe you cover your mirrors, may, whatever. And, and then at a certain time that's over and you come back and you enter life as fully and completely as you can, right? Having, having mourned a loss fully and completely feeling all the sadness, the pain, perhaps the anger, however irrational emotions are, and, and, and not identified with them, simply experience them as human emotions, yes. having felt fully, having been accepted, and then let go, right? Let go. But, and then, but see, that's the difficult part to, to, have, to experience the emotion we get carried away with that. We don't know how to let that go. Well, that's because we keep blaming somebody else for it. How can we let it go if we're always projecting the cause of it external to ourselves? So the cause of an emotion that is like an energy drainer, as Dr. Chaita would say, an energy vampire in, in some sense, you know, that's sucking energy. It's, it's, it's causes from inside of us only. Yeah even though it seems like somebody else has triggered it or somebody else has said this or done that or whatever. So that's a good, I just caught you, what you just said, somebody else has triggered it. The thing is, is when something is triggered in me, it's my emotion. Somebody may have said or done something or not said or done something that triggered my sense of abandonment, my sense, my fear of, um, being cheated on or mistreated in some way. It's my emotion, right? And, mm -hmm. and it's a very good chance that that emotion's been with me on and off throughout my whole life. Yes. And that let's just say there are people who feel that their spouse could leave them at any moment and they live with that fear of abandonment. You find out, oh yeah, their father was gone all the time, or maybe they didn't even know their father right. was missing, right? So, so those energies, when we're not educated on how to deal with those energies in a way that gives us some power and control in the situation, mm -hmm. leaves us victimized with the energy sitting in our subconscious ready to just jump out anytime somebody does or says something that's anywhere reminiscent of these earlier traumas yeah. that we then keep drawing into our life and repeating them. So is there, is there a way to unblock oneself from the vortex of attachments? Because they're there. They're all, most human beings have them. They're just pretty much just rolling around in them. What are, what are some of the steps that person can take to become more aware of this and kind of come out of it? 
Well, the first thing is to practice being aware of your own thoughts and feelings. Yeah. I, I would say the uh, two major first steps in this work, and this is the work of a lifetime, yeah. um, are one, to stay in your body, stop living in your mind, because what's going on around you is going on in the present moment. And if you're not in your body, you're not in the present moment. You're either in a past or a future. Neither one are currently existing. So what's going on is going on in this moment. How is, if I'm not in touch with the fact that I even have a body, much less how my body is feeling, how my body's reacting in the moment, I don't have much hope of being able to deal with what's going on. The next thing is to train your mind which is what mindfulness, Buddhist meditation, um, you know, the, the Vedas talk about how to train your mind. Um, Christianity has uh, the contemplative method of insight. So there are all kinds of practices from all different traditions to basically wake us up to what's going on on a subliminal level in our mind that that is our biology and to recognize it for what it is so that when part one part of it gets loud enough it grabs us by the throat and here we are in the throes of abandonment um which may or may not be an appropriate reaction to what just happened right so i would say those two practices are Deceptively simple, I just say it so easily, right? Like choose to be conscious of your thoughts every moment. Choose to be a conscious breather because then you're in your body because the breath is actually happening in your body to be aware of that. Yes. Those two practices are the foundation, the cornerstones of empowering yourself in life in general, but certainly in relationships. So would you say that there is uh, a connection between attachment and being bound? Being bound? Being bound, like bound up, you know, being locked yeah, up. Yeah, you can be bound by your attachments. You, you know, you can say, oh, I love my child so much. Um, I only want the best for him. Uh, that's why I want him to do X, Y, and Z. And I keep talking to him about how he should do MNOP. Um, and when the person, say myself, is open to kind of opening that up, what you can find out is a lot of what you're calling love is really fear-based energy, right? So. I love my son so much. I want him to be safe. So when he wants to go to the Middle East to study, I am in a tizzy saying, you can't be safe. It's crazy. Not the time to travel. All of those things because I love you so much. Well, no, I'm saying these things to you because I'm afraid, right? So I'm thinking, oh, I'm loving him, I'm loving him, that's why I'm nagging him, that's why I'm telling him whatever I'm telling him, don't go, don't go, don't go. But really what's driving that 
is my own fear that something bad will happen to him. And yeah. to wake up to how much of what we're putting into our relationships in the name of love is actually driven by fear. Right, right, right. So when there is fear of all different kinds, that is a, is a very strong emotion. There's, there has a lot of you know, reality to it, certainly. Do you feel that it's possible to really evolve out of that? Because it's an evolution that we're talking about. You know, angel wing programming, there's the whole notion of self-mastery and personal uh, unfoldment or personal development. To develop out of these harmful attachments into something much more uh, stable and much more integrated, perhaps, the expansion that you talk about. Uh, my question here would be that when a person is in a limited state of fear and attachments and, and different kinds of conflicts and, and whatnot, there's so much uh, of a sense of being lost in that at times that even though a person may want to get out of it, it's like a jungle that they're not able to get out of that. And they could spend years and years, if not most of their lifetime, just trying to get out of that jungle. I mean, I, I've heard it said that, you know, we uh, generate attachments for half of our life and then we spend the, the other half trying to get out of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so um, given the time is limited in life, time is shrinking, we don't know how much time is left. Time is, a, time is of the essence, time is very precious. What is your message for people who are wanting to awaken out of these vortexes of attachment, these cyclical attachments, what is your message for them about how to awaken out of this? What, what is the, the energetic intensity that's needed for such a thing? Real dedication. That you really want to, that you really want that, like, you know, you should have that. Well, I think it needs to become one of the primary motives in, in a lifetime. To, to, to know yourself, you know, to thine own self be true. Yes. Throughout the ages, this has come to us in millions of different forms and ways. But how do you know yourself if you're always identifying with all of these emotions that are, and thought forms that are passing through our awareness? Yes. Um, it's a correction in language, but because language carries energy, it's worth noting. People often will say, I am mad, I am angry. They might even say, I'm an angry person. Yes. Well, it might be more helpful and more accurately descriptive to say, I feel the energy of anger intensely, frequently. Yeah right? Allowing yourself the space to identify with consciousness instead of emotion or thought. Mm -hmm. Right. Thoughts come and go. Emotions come and go. Consciousness is the hallmark of human life. And, it's, and you're saying that the consciousness that we are is what identifies with these limited thought forms, limited, it identifies with limitation. 
when you use the word identify, can you elaborate on that? What is that process? Well, identify, uh, let's just take the, 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 the strong emotion example right now, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm just so, 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 well, let's use fear because that's, that's primal, right? Um, I'm there, there, I heard gunfire the other day. I'm so afraid to go out of my front door because maybe that was a drive-by shooting. Now it could have been firecrackers too, right? But, um, but let's just say it becomes real to me that it was gunfire because that's the fear that was triggered in me. My own fear of not being safe was triggered by a sound that I thought was gunfire. Yes. Right? PTSD, people who have been in combat zones sometimes will hit the, hit the ground, hit the sidewalk when a car backfires because it sounds enough like uh, a bullet that they're brought back to that, that survival mode, right? Right, right, exactly. So, yeah, we aren't the emotions. We're the screen of consciousness that that emotion registers on, that that thought form registers on. And everything is energy, right? And consciousness is one of the most powerful energies. And it's often said that man is called the crown of creation because man has the ability to reflect on him or herself. Right. So this, we can be aware that we're aware, right? I'm aware of fear. Wow. What happens when I'm aware of the fact that I'm aware of fear? I feel it in my body. I hear the words in my mind about it. At that moment, I can make a choice. Do I want to feed the story that I have about this fear? That the gunfire outside of my house is, is making it so I can, can't leave my house? Or do I want to recognize it for what it is and choose to let that the fear energy pass and then contemplate? Well, should I find out if it was gunfire? If it was gunfire, do I need to move? How, you know, how do I arrange that? But it puts some agency or power back into our lives. We're not a victim. Exactly. Strong thoughts and emotions. Yes, exactly. And that's what self-mastery would be all about, is to recognize that I don't have to remain in that limited space that's just, or that limited uh, experience that, that's kind of entrapping me. I can I can move out of that. I can I can deliberately take steps to not identify with it. it, it you know, yes, yes, that's exactly. By the the first choice that we make when we're conscious is to is whether we're going to identify with something or not. We get to choose. Am I going to make this who I am? And when I do, then I have to have a big story around sustaining it, why it happened, what I'm going to do with it. And all that time and energy is invested in this fear, making it bigger and bigger and bigger. Or do I want to say, whoa, this is really intense fear. Let's just say it moves you into a panic attack. You think you're going to die when you're having a panic attack. Right, right. 
And, and with some education and having been to the ER a couple of times and being sent home because you have a panic attack, not a heart attack, you start to learn, oh God, here it comes again. This is, this is hard. It's hard to be here with this, but it's an emotion and it passes. It's not who I am. Right, exactly. And the, the ability to let that pass and not regurgitate that again and again can develop yes. as one begins to directly observe the activity of the mind, the activity that is occurring within. Exactly. Because every time you make a choice to do something different, yes. let's just say fireworks. Every time I choose to not think that it's gunfire, I create a new neural network. And so the neural network that associates that sound with gunfire starts to disconnect. The neurons stop being fired together. So they stop being wired together all on its own, simply because we're not using the same neural network anymore. We're saying, I'm going to check this out. Oh, look, it's the 3rd of July. Yeah, they're starting to set off the firecrackers right now, right? So that moment of conscious choice yes. is so powerful. And the, every time we do it, we build this network of kind of pausing, getting into our body and thinking more clearly about what what we're experiencing. So the practices of like different types of meditations that you have taught, others have taught, these practices, would you say that they enhance the ability to detect that point within oneself where one can decide to not be identified? You know, one can decide that I don't have to be identified with this. There's this kind of a strength that that's what it seems like. It, it's like a muscle. Yeah. And, and, and it's like any other muscle in the body. Right. You need to work on it pretty diligently to keep it in good shape. Right. Mm -hmm. So we need to begin many of us at, at a more advanced stage in life. It, it would be wonderful if this is what they taught in preschool. Actually, some preschools are teaching kids mindfulness. How wonderful is that? I saw a picture, I don't know, a year or so ago, and it was a whole courtyard of children. There must have been 1,200 of them sitting in meditation. Little, little guys, yeah. right? Yeah. So we're capable of learning this. And, and it doesn't matter when you come to it, what, how old you are in your physio physiology. Whenever you come to it in life, you can do it. This is part of the human potential. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. All right. So that is very powerful. Just one more final question here for today's podcast. See, this whole notion of mastering oneself, that all sounds very good. And that is a big mission, of course, of, uh, of Angel Wing. In the day-to-day -day life that we have, there are so many changes. There are so many people we come across. There's such a flux of emotions, flux of different thoughts, you know, different steps we're taking, different activities we're doing. There doesn't seem to be usually 
just a consistent sense of self mastery. You know, it, it, it seems like there's there could be some glimpses of it from here here and there. Uh, what do you say about that? Uh, that that is self mastery something that can evolve gradually, gradually into an eventual like a permanent state that you were just there. Yes. You know, I, I, I don't know what a great tennis player would say, but I bet they'd say it would be hundreds and thousands of hours yeah. of practice on the tennis court before they win the whatever the big deal in tennis is or whatever the big deal in golf is, right? Um, we're, we're practicing to be masters of our own lives. And again, I come back to this sense of this term radical responsibility, yes. to a radical choice to say, if it's happening in my life, I'm responsible. I, and, and I believe that I can find the resources to deal with this. And maybe other people or other sources will give you some information or some tips that resonate with you and you can begin your own practice, but the work of mastery is yours. Nobody can do it for you. And, and that's very, very much like an axiom that this is just, just the way it is. And you have to do your own work in this, get guidance from others, take use the tools available. And if we don't do our own work, then we will just be trapped in the attachment structure. Yes. Yes, because humans, when you think about the biology of the human being, right? Forget even evolution at this point. Mammals are born um, immature in some ways, right? Helpless and remain helpless for a good long time. Little ducks can crack out of their eggs and they're pretty okay to move on, right? Yeah, mama teaches them how to swim or eat or whatever, but, <clears throat> but, but mammals, humans need the warmth, the sound of soothing vocalizations from their species and physical contact. Yes, yes, yes. So we are born dependent and in that dependent state, we interact with people who have a lot more power than we do, but we intuitively, instinctively know we have to please them or we're not going to survive, right. right? I don't know that our brain structure tells us that, but we know it, right? So when we're hungry, we cry and then we scream to high heaven so that somebody will feed us, right? Right, exactly. But, the, the, the other side of that is that very early on, as our brain is just beginning to develop, we then take in all the cues from the caregivers, the authority figures around us to tell us what life is and who we are. Right. And that's not based, I mean, that's based on our experience of somebody else who's telling us that, not our own experience with life directly at this point. Right. So this is where attachment begins, right? This, this primal sense of needing someone to survive. Exactly, exactly. But after a certain point, 
we can then begin to move into the recognition of our own powers and stop mm -hmm. either blaming and or depending on others when we've reached this stage where we can take care of that ourselves. That's a very powerful sentence, recognition of our own powers, the word recognition to recognize to how energy is moving, what how energy is being used in attachment or different emotions. And so, so there's a there's a great uh, truth in this because it, it seems to me that if a person does begin to recognize that there is energy power that is being either used or drained or or, or misused or whatever, however it's used to recognize how it's used, then that recognition is what allows one to divert that energy in other ways, it seems to me. Yes, I would not say divert. I would say focus. Focus, focus the energy. In, in. So, so what's the difference between diverting and focusing? Uh, well, maybe in, in this context, divert is okay. Diverting means that it's naturally flowing in one direction and you have to divert it someplace else. Okay. Right. Um, so it's just a, a fine association I have to the word divert probably was appropriate because well yeah. typically when we become aware of any kind of desire to take the reins of our life back in our own hands yes, back exactly. in our own domain exactly. right <clears throat> our energy is already going out in ways that <laughs> that we would with more wisdom, choose to, as you said, redirect it, right? Yes. So when a person decides to do this, the various tools like yoga, meditation, mindfulness, even for those who need clinical assistance like psychotherapy or clinical intervention, psychiatry, whatever, whatever it is, whatever is available out there, they should uh, take help as needed. Is it yes. not? Right? Yes. Absolutely help with the understanding that this is mine to take care of. And I may I am in a position right now where I need um, I become unmoored in some way, right? My, my, my anchor has been pulled up and, and the storm of these emotions is buffeting me around and, and I need assistance to find my own balance point again. Exactly, exactly. So that's what Angel Wing is trying to do with groups and, and other modalities so that individuals can find their own balance point. It's a discovery. So, the, so, so the, the balance point is actually existing somewhere within each individual. It's a discovery that one needs to uh, uh, awaken into or, to, or, or, or it's, it's, it's not simply just an idea or just something that might sound like a good idea. It is an actual discovery that there is this balance point. Yes, it, there, it's a bodily experience. It's a mental experience. It's an emotional experience. Equanimity, right. being equanimous, big word, don't hear it that much, nope. but it exists within us, within the spectrum of human uh, capacity and experience that sense of being balanced. You, the image of being in the eye of a hurricane. I uh, spent years in Florida as a kid 
And one of the big deals about the hurricane, because your dad boarded up all the windows and everything, but there would be an eye. When the eye would come through, you'd get to run outside and play in the water that's running down the streets. And your dad always knew when you to corral you back in again and get inside because then the rest, you know, the backside of the hurricane would come through with just as much ferocity and force. Right. And the hurricane would be all gone. Exactly. So can we stand in the eye of the hurricane, right? When these emotions are like raging around us. And I'm not saying... I don't have emotions. I'm human. We will always have emotions. And even if we cut ourselves off from them and try and stuff them down and become, you know, icy people. Yes. On, the emotions are still roiling inside of us sure. because it's part of being human. So it, it sounds like to me what you may be saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that the emotion is an occurrence in consciousness. It's, it's, it's something that's occurring that we become aware of, that we see that, oh, it's there. But the non-identification with the waves of emotion is true self-mastery. Yes. Yes. And that's the real goal. That's the real aim that, yeah, emotions, we're going to experience. I mean, it is ridiculous just that we won't experience them. But the experience of it is not something that will overwhelm us because we are recognizing the emotion as a wave on the ocean of consciousness. Yes, and, and I hear these days the phrase, expand your bandwidth of tolerance for negative emotions, Right. you know, painful thoughts, um, <clears throat> as, as a description of why you might be practicing mindfulness or self-inquiry, right? right? To, right. to learn, hey, this stuff does come and go, even though while I'm in the throes of it, I don't see that. If I've identified with it, I don't see it because I become that wild, chaotic energy. You also say that as, as one evolves and grows further towards self-mastery, as the evolution takes off, the origin point of disturbance, whatever disturbance may be, maybe it's attachment related, or maybe it's some, it, it could be anything, doesn't matter. Somebody says something to us in the parking lot, I mean, who knows, right? Whatever. The origin of disturbance is detected just when the disturbance begins and it stopped right at that point. Yeah. So my personal experience, as well as conversations over the years with others, is that it's um, a process in which you begin to recognize, wow, my getting lost in strong emotion or investing in building a big story about blaming things outside of myself, <coughs> that not only does it, <coughs> excuse me, occur less frequently, but the recovery from it. And what I mean by recovery is the recognition of, whoa, here I go down that tunnel of anger or that tunnel of judgment again. I think I'm just gonna try and focus on my breath for a while to get back into the awareness. I have a body. I'm not just these thoughts. I don't have to live in this imaginary world of thought. 
I can actually get back in my body, feel my breath. And just that simple choice, even if it only lasts for three or four breaths that you're able to concentrate, it has a whole cascade of neural neurochemicals in your body to help your body relax. When your body relaxes, if you're aware of it, then your thoughts begin to shift because the thoughts are always trying to mirror the state of the body. Right, exactly. So we're built to be able to do this. Yes. Our, our physiology, our biology, our biochemistry, it's all there waiting for us to learn to work with it. Exactly. And, and that's the whole point, that it is a learning, growing uh, process. And it's not instantaneous as such. Oh, well, you know, people report there are, there's something called instantaneous enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but mostly, at least in the West, people say that that fries your nervous system, basically. Yeah, right. So this kind of step-by-step self-discipline. Sure. That leads to actually first self-acceptance. Here I am, being angry at some things, being fearful with some things, and I can accept myself like that. I don't have to wait until I no longer feel anger or, you know, fear in order to accept myself or love. My and then the right. next step is this radical self to love yourself, the radical step, right? Radical responsibility, radical self-love. They're, they're radical steps given the culture and the time we live in. And they're needed given the, the condition of human society across the board. Uh, it, it, yeah. it very much, you know, from a more empirical standpoint, uh, it is the neural sculpting of the self. It's a, it's a, that's another brain-based way of thinking about this. This, this yes. Just as a person creates a sculpture, similarly, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, I, I guess it was Michelangelo who said, I can see the David in the, in the slab of the stone. The, in the, yes, yes, yes. And I'm just chipping away at the, at, the, at the pieces and then the David is there. Yes. So similarly, can we see our own mastery by chipping away uh, uh, all the irrelevancies and all the uh, unnecessary things that are that we're uh, that we're holding on to, and and hence we are actually sculpting neurologically the self. So yes, and I would say that for me, I envision us being born with a sense of self-mastery yes because everything is provided for us in the womb right right and and we're born and maybe we have def you know parts of our body are deformed or whatever but when we're born we don't think that there's anything wrong with us inside right mm -hmm. um so so that's or it's not like we have to learn it we have to remember it Mm -hmm. That our biology, our, our DNA, our, our RNA, that we're, we're created with the potential to use all of our capabilities. So for me, it's this sense of rewiring the brain to what I now know and what I now want yeah. from what other people 
from their point of view of what I should know and want. So, so in many ways, if I consider myself as a uh, energetic being, as you have said before in many of your presentations, in that sense, I can also consider myself as a person who is using my mind to sculpt and fashion the brain itself. Yes, absolutely. The, the neuroscientists who are working with the brain say, up until your last breath, you can be reprogramming your brain. You know, and if that's the case, then with the food analogy, just as we're putting food in our in our mouths and goes in our stomach, you know, we try to obviously eat food that is clean and healthy and not contaminated and not uh, uh, rotten and stuff like that. Similarly, our brain development is very much based on interactions with others, relationships, feelings, thoughts, emotions. It's the whole interaction process that develops our brain. And uh, from all of the points you've made today, could you just uh, could elaborate a little bit on the, the health of the brain? Just as we talk about health of the body, you know, just as we eat cooked food or fresh food for the health of the body, how does that parallel with our interactions with, with people and places and things in terms of the development of the brain itself and, and the so, health of the brain? So I would say we can, and it's advisable to think about not only nourishing the body, but nourishing the brain. Right, exactly. And so nourishing the brain is about looking at, examining, taking responsibility for what our brain is experiencing. Am I watching violent movies? Am I playing video games where I kill people? Right. Am I reading true crime novels, finding out what serial killers' brains are like? It, you know, those are pretty radical. Yes. They, but there's also, am I just watching mind-numbing, you know, meaningless stuff yeah. because I feel overwhelmed and I just don't want to have to be on call right. in my my mind anymore right. so what am i watching what am i reading critically what kinds of interactions am i having with other people am i hanging out with people who are chanting hate slogans who are chanting you know whatever death to whoever they don't like anymore um, we watched this very recently at our own capital death to our vice president my God, who knew that we would live in a culture and a society that would have something like that happen, you know, in the Capitol building. So that's a, a litmus test of how much really negative, hateful, blaming, it's somebody else's fault energy has filled the planet, certainly the part of the planet I live in. And so it's up to me, just like it's up to me, am I going to eat junk food for the sugar rush, the high that I get? Or am I going to spend some time trying to cook good, healthy food that's balanced and put it in my body? Who am I talking to? Yeah. What are the topics of the conversations that I'm interacting with? Are they expanding me in terms of my own understanding of 
who I am and why I'm here? Or are they contracting me down to some little facet of life saying everything else is bad and wrong? And because I feel bad, it's somebody else's fault, which totally makes me a victim, right? And, and perhaps it's what's driving these horrendous crime waves of shootings all over the country. People are so freaked out that they lose total control and just randomly shoot other people to try and get rid of this negative energy. Which is, which is a, an extreme example. And these examples that you're giving, these are certainly extreme examples of highly focused energy that is based on or is funneled through the harmful ego. Again, we haven't spoken about the ego directly in today's conversation. No, but that's what kind of I hear you say. Do you want to say something about that at all? I mean, they, because the, the sense of me, psychological me, that gets strong in this, there's this great strength, but it's a very negative strength that, that, that develops. So there are many um, traditions, lines of inquiry that make a very clear distinction between personality and ego. Yes. And I think pretty much common ground in that is the ego is all, all that I see that is not me, right? Me versus not me, which is a very, very early developmental stage in the lifespan of a human being. And the ego is not very happy about the things that we're talking about because the ego loses its place of supremacy in our lives. Yes, that's when the we start to understand our connectedness, our need to be in aware, healthy relationships and connections. So the ego stops being the king of the mountain. Right. And it fights that all the time. Whereas the personality is a unique expression of me. You know, my intellect is different than yours. Mm -hmm. And when we come together, how something bigger than the summer, some of the parts comes out of it. The personality can be taught to be loving and kind and responsible. More, more than anything else, responsible, right? So it doesn't want to just dive into the blame game. Right, right, exactly. So it, which also speaks to the fact that personality, the sense of identity, who I see myself as, this is also a dynamic evolution. Absolutely, absolutely, because the more aware we become, with new neural networks, right. new ways of understanding who we are in the world, new, new neural connections in our brain. Exactly. We're expanding our access to our full potential. Beautiful, and see now, so let's see if we can end on this note um, that is a very, very powerful and very uh, applicable statement you just made that we are accessing and opening our full potential. Um, this, as I was hearing you, and I just want to make just a couple of summary comments here that I want to just give you a chance to summarize it. You know, the whole Angel Wing program uh, as conceptualized by Dr. Chetan Kripalu is for the whole of humanity. 
it's open for everyone who is interested in doing just this, in doing this that you just mentioned, that opening the full possibility, full potential, and recognizing that we have so much potential. So the recognition of it, the holding on to it, and taking active steps day to day, hour to hour, moment to moment, is what leads to self-mastery, irrespective of what the past may have been. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you would like to make some closing comments on this, uh, uh, Dr. Berman. I would just say that there's, I'll own it. For me, when this became real, not conceptual, Yes. not an outline that I had in my brain about what to do next, um, it, I, I was be, I began to embody it. I began to live more and more yeah. aware that I was walking around in a body, but I was not the body. I was more than the body. I was the consciousness that's aware of my body. And then when I began to <clears throat> basically start to discipline my brain in a different way than I did for academia, which was to memorize things and be able to put them together and give them back on tests or in lectures, but to actually see who I was becoming or who I had become and what my power to change, what I chose to change was, it changed my life completely. Yeah. And it became basically the underlying focus of everything in my life. Now, yes, there are unconscious moments in my life and I do and say and experience things in ways from my past, yeah. but my anybody's dedication to truly knowing themselves, you'll just go through the stage where you'll start remembering more and more, this is not who I am. This is not where I wanna be or what I wanna do. And you go back to whatever techniques you've chosen to discipline your mind exactly. because you're not identifying with it anymore. Right, all right. That was Dr. Elizabeth Berman, who is a licensed psychologist in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, on, on behalf of the Angel Wing program, and she's one of our key members uh, of the Angel Wing team. Many, many thanks and much gratitude to the wonderful and profound insights that are directly applicable. Uh, please keep in mind that Dr. Berman's podcasts, videos, audios will be available uh, in time on the Angel Wing website, as well as on the Angel Wing YouTube channel and in many other um, formats uh, that are part of social media and in, and in other related areas. For further information, please do visit theangelwing.com or give us a call. And um, once again, stay in touch to be, uh, to be part of the Angel Wing program, to get more information. Please contact uh, the Angel Wing in any capacity. We will definitely follow up with you. And on that basis, wish everyone a great deal of happiness. And thank you once again, Dr. Burma. You're welcome.